Hey, as you're getting seated, would you pull out your Bible? We are getting into an amazing passage today in the book of Ephesians chapter four. And we do it every Sunday. Every, every Sunday we gather, we pull out our Bible, we get into the word. So if you didn't bring a Bible, just raise your hand and there are ushers. We want you to have the written word there in front of you. And this is part of the rhythm of our church. And we do this because we believe that God's word is living and active. It, is, it has power. When we go to God's word with humble hearts, God's spirit will speak to us. God has a word for you this morning. And so excited to get into the word together. If you're visiting or if you're new to our church, we are in a series of teachings where we're working through a list of words that describe a living church, a healthy church. So we're calling it Living Church, and this list of words are the traits, seven traits of a healthy living church. This series has been very rich. It's been meaningful. If you're joining us and this is new to you, you can go back and start from the beginning and, and go on the journey with us. Um, we have finished up to word five. So last week we did part three of a three-part series on unity that was incredibly meaningful in the life of our church. And today we've come to word number six. The word maturity describes something that has reached the end or the goal of its development. When a thing or a person comes to the end of a process, sometimes it's a long process with many stages of development and struggle and process and growth. When a person or a thing comes to the end or the goal of that process, the word that we use to describe that thing or that person is the word maturity. To be thought of as mature is high praise, all right? To be called mature. It's not just a, a veiled way of calling someone old, although people do that. No, to be called mature is the ultimate compliment because often maturity is the result of often a long and costly process of time and patience and struggle and endurance reaching this point where we'd say maturity. It's amazing, beautiful. Maturity can be a little difficult to quantify. It's hard to define. In fact, I would imagine that of the seven words, the word for us that is the least obvious out right out of the gate is the word maturity. You think, what does the word maturity mean? It's hard to define. It's difficult to quantify. But here's the thing. You almost always know maturity when you encounter it. You always know maturity when you see it. When you open a bottle of wine that is mature, you know it. Thank you. Someone's like, mmm. <laughs> now, I'm not a wine connoisseur. I actually don't drink wine, but I know some of you are like wine geeks, all right? Wine geeks. And you know, and, you, and the way you talk about wine and you use language to describe the perfectly aged, mature bottle of wine. You start talking, it's like a foreign language. And you use words like bottle bouquet. What the heck does that mean, bottle bouquet? And you know that wine, sometimes it needs to mature. It needs time for all of the flavors to integrate and to develop complexity. And I've seen
seen wine drinkers with their nose deep in the glass, you know, and then they start talking about, mm, there's hints of gooseberry and forest floor. And it's like, what? Boot leather. Yeah, I've heard that. I'm just making stuff up now. I have no idea. But you know, and then you know, you know when you taste it, right? You know when you walk into a forest that's mature. Call it an ancient forest, old growth forest. You ever walked into an old growth forest? You know it immediately. You walk in and it's quiet and you can smell. Did you smell the trees when you came in this morning? Yeah. They just actually, there was an article yesterday that scientists have proven that the smell of fir tree actually changes your mood. Did you know this? And that, that's why we put the trees in here, all right? It's, we're manipulating you. But anyway, you know, you step into an ancient forest and immediately there's something about it. You can tell the, the ground is squishy over the years of debris falling and dying and it creates this mature ecosystem, biologists Ecologists call it a mature ecosystem. I studied biology in college, a degree that I use every day in the ministry. But anyway, you step in there and there's this sense of maturity and it's quiet in an old growth forest. Because over time, different layers of strata have developed and there's this quiet, the wind doesn't blow as much. Did you know that in an old growth forest, there are species of animals that can only live in ancient forests. There's something about the way the wood is and the environment. Certain kinds of owl and species live there. and There's life and you know this forest is mature. My wife and I bought a piece of land and it's in a forest right up here by Tryon Creek Park and the trees are just old and they feel ancient. And when we were visiting the property, we were walking through this path that goes through our backyard and my wife saw an owl in the tree. She was walking with our real estate agent and the owl dove out of the tree and tried to kill my real estate agent. Just <laughs> dove out. This is a true story. And right away, my wife said, I knew at that moment, I have to buy this piece of property. <laughs> right? You know. You know when you come into the presence of a mature saint, a mature follower of Jesus. There's something about that person their countenance, the way they pray, the way they listen or are attentive. You know, there's something about the way they talk about the pain in their life or the struggle or the joys, something about it. But, but what about a mature community? What about a mature church? Would you know that if you encountered it? What would it look like? And how does it happen? How does maturity happen in the church body? That's what Ephesians 4 is about, starting in verse 7. Will you look at it with me? Now, you're going to have to fight today against our American tendency to think only about maturity in, in, terms, in individual terms, okay? Next week, we're going to come back and talk more about individual maturity. But today, we're talking about the maturity that happens in a church family. Will you read it with me? I'm going to start in verse 7. Here's what Paul said. But grace was given to each one. 
I'm going to start over. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? I think Paul's speaking poetically here about the Christmas story. He's talking about the incarnation, Jesus entering human history, condescending into the lower regions, and probably even referring to his descent all the way through the cross into a tomb. Paul says, in the same way that Jesus ascended, he also descended. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a passage, so rich. You know, every living church is always growing, always maturing. It's like a sign of life. You would step into a church and you would say, how could I know if this church is alive? And the question you would ask is, is this church growing in maturity as a community? Is there growth happening? Is there progress happening? Because it be, it's very evident from God's word that maturity is God's great goal for his church. It's his agenda for the church that the church would always be being built up and growing. That's why Paul piles on the language and the metaphors. He wants to drive home this same theme. So he speaks of the body growing up into Christ, the head. And he speaks of the church building itself up in love. We come to verse 13 and we see this incredibly vivid phrase, mature Manhood. Paul says, you must, uh, you must attain to maturity. Maturity is the agenda of Jesus for his church. It's his goal for us. You know, that word mature means the end goal. It's the Greek word teleos. And the word teleos means having reached the end, having reached the goal. It means to be fully developed, to be complete. Sometimes it gets translated with the word perfect, but the problem with the word perfect is we're not talking so much about lacking any imperfection as we're talking about the idea that the becoming what God intends for us to be, moving towards completion in Christ. In the church, maturity is about our direction. Where are we headed? 
What's our goal? What is our quest together? And when you read this passage, what you realize is that the whole passage is actually, it hangs on a really powerful contrast that Paul makes. And the contrast is in verse 14, you'll see it. It's a contrast that he makes between adults and children. Did you notice that? Paul would say, if you want to understand what maturity is, you have to grasp this contrast between adults and children. So Paul would say, you got to attain to maturity so that, verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and deceived by false teachers. And he goes on. And it's very helpful because we get that. We, we can understand the difference between kids and adults, right? And how it's, it would be weird if you stayed a child for your entire life. You know, you're supposed to grow up and mature, yeah? We get that. And we know, let's be honest, there are things that children can get away with because they're children. They can get away with murder. Do you know what I mean by this? Because they're kids, they're enduring, endearing, they're cute, they're adorable. And they do things that if you continue doing them as an adult, it would be weird, you know? When Bridget was born, my youngest, she was so cute. She had these chubby cheeks and she came out with a full head of hair that stuck straight up, this dark hair. My wife is part Korean and she just had this dark hair that stood straight up. She looked like Kim Jong-il, you know, just strap a polyester suit on her. It's a spinning image. And she was so cute. She had these cheeks that were so chubby, but I've never known a baby in my entire life that drooled as much as Bridget McMurray, all right? She, would just, she was just a spit factory constantly. And when she was old enough to hold her head up, I would pick her up in the air and she would squeal and then she would just drool on my head, you know? And then I would kiss her and it was like kissing a waterfall or something. And, but, and, when, and when you're a baby, it's like, you don't care about that. But if as adults, if every time we got excited, we just started drooling, that would be strange, right? One, one Sunday I was down in the children's ministry I was down there as kids were coming in and this little guy, he was super small. He came walking into the church and he had on his Spider-Man pajamas. I mean, this guy, the audacity, he showed up to church in his pajamas. You know what I mean? And he's rocking these pajamas. And the thing about it was no one had a problem with it. People gave him so many compliments. Dude, those pajamas are so cool. But guys, let's be honest. If you show up to the sanctuary in Spider-Man pajamas, okay, we have a safety team for moments like that, right? <laughs> so we get it. There's stuff you're supposed to grow out of. And you're supposed to grow into maturity. And Paul actually... This is actually very intense because Paul wants us to see two traits of children that we need to grow out of. He says, children are often marked by these two traits. They're unstable, which is what Paul means in verse 14 about being tossed to and fro. Do you see that language? Children tend to be unstable and they're also undiscerning. That's what Paul says when he says that they're easily deceived, they're carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, deceitful schemes. That's what immaturity looks like, being unstable, being, being easily swayed, easily diverted. Children tend to go after every trend that's presented to them. You know, there are fads and trends in the church and we shouldn't have always go after every one of them, right? 
But also Paul says, children are undiscerning. They don't know sometimes when they're in danger. Isn't that true? Have you ever noticed that kids will play like super close to dangerous situations? It's just what kids do. I gave my poor mother a heart attack on multiple occasions, right? That's what children do. And Paul says, the agenda of Jesus is for maturity. This is like Jesus cares about this because River West, there's always a threat. There are teachers out there and ideas out there. And, and in the text, Paul's saying, these people, these false teachers, do you know what is their motive? Their motive is malice and deceit. They want to deceive and lead astray. So Paul says, maturity could not matter more. And if it matters to Jesus, it needs to matter to us, River West. We need to grow. The Apostle Paul gives us in this passage four ingredients that are critical. If we're going to grow in maturity, there are four ingredients that every church must have. I'm going to give you this list. I'm going to give it to you up front. I want you to see it because one of the things I want you to realize is that this list should be, should be obvious to you even as you just read the text on a cursory level. These four things are required to grow in maturity. The headship of Christ over the church, and not just in word, not just in lip service, but in function. Jesus functioning as head and ruler and source over the church. That's number one. Number two, gifted and qualified leadership. Number three, every member ministry. And number four, and we'll end on this one today, a consistent balance of truth and love. When we get to that one, that's going to lead us to the table. And we're going to see at the cross of Christ this incredible balance of truth and love held together in perfect symmetry, right? Now look, if you walk into a church and all four of those things are at work, you can be certain this church is growing in maturity. But, but often if you remove one of these, it's very likely that the church will stall out, stop growing. Today, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do one and two quickly. I'm gonna camp on number three because I, I have a personal word for you out of number three. And then number four is gonna lead us to communion. But, but let's walk through these together. So the first is the headship of Christ over the church. I was struck as I studied the passage this week how much Paul focuses on Jesus in this passage. It's very Christ-centered. Maybe you noticed that. You know, earlier in chapter four, when Paul talked about unity, he focused on God as the Trinity. And you remember this from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about unity and Paul, Paul lifts the reader's attention to the triune God. He talks about the one Lord and the one spirit and the one father and Lord over all. And it's very much a Trinitarian vision of God. But then when Paul makes a transition and he wants to talk about maturity, suddenly he becomes very focused on the person of Christ. And that's because his driving metaphor is the metaphor of the body of Christ with Christ as the head. Christ is the source Christ is the giver of life. Every head, every body needs a head to survive. And in the metaphor that Paul uses, the church is the body and the head is Jesus Christ. He's the source. 
You'll notice at the beginning in verses seven and eight, Paul talks about how Jesus is the source of all these gifts. He's like this sovereign gift giver. And he pours out generously gifts on the church. So in verse seven, he says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul keeps talking about Jesus giving gifts and grace. In the very next sentence, he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Jesus gives to his church spiritual gifts. Then in verse 11, we get a list of the gifts that Jesus has given and Paul's driving it home. Now, today we're gonna talk about the gifts that have been given at a leadership level. And then eventually I'm gonna talk about the gifts that have given, been given to every single one of you as a member of the body of Christ. But first, Paul wants us to see that if you don't understand who the gift giver is, you'll never understand the purpose of the gift. Paul says, you, the church, if the church is gonna grow, Christ must be the head, and it can't just be in lip service. It has to be functional. You read the passage, Jesus is the hero of the story. He's the source of life. Jesus is the one who gives gifts. Jesus is the one who sets the agenda. My agenda for the church is to grow into maturity. But also, Paul says, Jesus becomes the standard by which we measure maturity. Look at verse 15, where Paul says, you need to grow up into Christ who is the head. Paul speaks of the church growing up into the fullness of the reality of Christ. So you say, what does maturity look like? Maturity looks like being like Jesus as a church family. That is maturity. And you begin to realize Christ is central. Christ must be on the throne of our church. If you take Jesus off the throne, maturity will cease immediately. A couple of years ago, I had heard about a church that was, had a really strong start and, then it's, and it really started to struggle and it had gone off the rails. And I went online and I listened to the podcast and I listened to an Easter sermon. And as I listened to the sermon, my heart fell. The pastor got up on Easter Sunday and this pastor said, you know, I'll be honest with you. I don't get that excited about Easter. I'm not that excited about Easter. And I thought, that is not the most inspirational way to start an Easter sermon. All right, note to self. But he, here's what he said. He said, I'm not that excited about Easter I'm not that excited about the resurrection and here's why. Because I'm not, I'm not convinced that Good Friday is all that good. And he said, I've, I've wrestled and I don't believe that Jesus needed to die for sin. He said, I don't think it's good that, that, that God would have to come and die a sacrificial death for human sin. I reject that version of the gospel. And so the resurrection becomes meaningless for me. And I, my heart sank as I heard that. And I thought, how could this church possibly grow in maturity? Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who has spent eternity in perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit 
out of his own power, of his own accord with a heart full of love, left the throne of heaven and entered our world. He clothed himself with frail humanity and out of his own accord, he went to a cross to hang in an act of sacrificial love for human sin. And he rose again on the third day and he seated in the place of power. And when the church keeps Jesus there, we grow in maturity. Amen, River West. You take Christ off of the throne. You take Christ off of the place of headship over your church. Maturity will cease. It's number one. But it also leads us to number two. So Christ is the head of the church, but also a church must have gifted and qualified leadership. That's what verse 11 is about. Did you notice that the gifts that Paul mentions are leadership gifts? They're leadership positions. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, that also is the word pastor, teachers. Paul gives this list of spiritual gifts. Now this, there are many lists in the New Testament there's lists in Romans and 1 Corinthians, and they're all different. None of them are exhaustive. There's probably many, many, many spiritual gifts. But what's interesting is when you get to Ephesians, where Paul wants to talk about growth and maturity, when he gives a list, he focuses on leadership gifts. This verse is notoriously difficult to interpret. Some people think there's four there, depending on how you study the Greek. They, they think that teachers and shepherds might be the same thing. And, and there's been a lot of debate about how many of those leadership roles are still in existence today. But the point of the list is to say that every living, healthy church needs qualified, gifted leadership. The first two apostles and prophets, when Jesus ascended to the throne, he gave the early church apostles and prophets. And these were unique leadership roles. And when the, when the apostles, uppercase A, and prophets, uppercase P, when they died, those positions were no longer replaced. They were unique. And they were unique because they were uniquely given the ability to receive revelation from God to write scripture and to found the church. So in the book of Ephesians, every time Paul talks about apostles and prophets, he's talking about the founding of his church. They were essential leadership roles. And when those first apostles and prophets died, they were not replaced. But shepherds and evangelists and teachers and elders and deacons and deaconesses, they carried on and Jesus has continued to grace and gift his church with leadership and the church needs leadership. The church needs leadership. And you know what holds that whole list together? The unifying characteristic that holds the list together is the ability to rightly handle the word. That is qualification number one for leadership in the church. So when Jesus graced the church with leaders, he gave them leaders who knew how to handle the word. A healthy church where people are growing will always be a church where the leadership, the teachers and the shepherds know how to open the scriptures and teach in such a way where the body grows, where the body is nourished. 
And if you, if you take away gifted leaders who don't know how to use the word, the church will starve, right? I'm so proud to be in a church where we have so many leaders in our church who know how to handle the word. It makes me so proud as a pastor to know every time Pastor Marianne steps up to teach at the river, she's so gifted. She knows the word of God. Amen. Every community group leader is so gifted. They know how to rightly handle the word. I step into our student ministry and I hear Jeff and Derek and others teach and preach. There's such wisdom with the word. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. The church will grow. We have elders who teach classes in our church and they're so gifted with the word of God. Paul says, that's why Jesus gave us leadership. But there's a reason why he gave us leadership and that's number three. This is where I wanna land. So we have Christ as the head. We have gifted and qualified leadership, but for what purpose? For what purpose? Well, Paul tells us, we have to read on from verse 11. He's given us apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints, verse 12, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's why the church has leaders, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, in 1946, there was an English translation of the Bible that came out, and when it translated this verse, it made a fatal error. And I'm going to put this verse up in the Revised Standard Version, 1946, which was otherwise a great year, perfectly fine, except for this one little sentence right here. Okay. And what I want you to notice as you read this verse, I want you to notice the first comma, what scholars call the fatal comma. Okay. Because there are no commas in the Greek for one thing. So this is interpretive. But look, listen to how this reads with that first comma. It says there are leaders in the church for the equipment of the saints, number one, for the work of the ministry, number two, and for building up the body of Christ. And maybe you're like, I don't get it. Well, here's what happens. That first comma creates a separation between the saints and the work of the ministry. And it makes it sound like the people who do the work of the ministry are the leaders. So now we have our English standard version that I'm gonna put up there. This is the version we use at River West. Love it, it's amazing. And here's what it says. It says the purpose of leaders is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Gifted leaders open the word of God. And as they teach, do you know what happens? The saints are equipped for the work of the ministry. This take away that comma and suddenly we're returned to the New Testament vision of ministry, which is that ministry is the privileged calling, not of a select few, but of all the people of God, every one. River West, brother and sister, Jesus is sovereign and you are not an accident. Jesus is the head of the church and you are not here by accident. He has a purpose for you. You have a role to play. You are not an incidental member in the body of Christ, no matter how much you might feel that you are. You didn't come into a relationship with Christ by accident, and you did not come into the body of Christ, even at River West Church by accident. You're not here by accident. You have a role to play. 
You have a purpose. Jesus has uniquely given you spiritual gifts and your gifts are needed in our church, our church. In the same way that a human body needs every member to function properly, so River West needs you. Even if you feel insignificant, you feel like that remote organ in there that no one knows what it does, right? The gallbladder or something like that. I have a friend who had his gallbladder out this last month. The gallbladder is actually very important, by the way. It stores bile, so anyway, but... This friend of mine, his name is Jeff Knopper. He had his gallbladder out and he's very, he's got a great sense of humor. He had the surgery and I texted him and I was like, how you doing, Jeff? How you feeling? And he's in, in, in his humorous Jeff Knopper way, he said, I'm doing okay. I'm a little sad. You know, my gallbladder and I were really close. We spent 64 years together. So, you know, and then he said, but alas, my gallbladder got sick and it started to make me sick. So I had to say, wait for it. By golly. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Jeff Knopper, that's your fault. On the um, Every member, every member matters. You might be thinking, what am I possibly meant to contribute to this church? But you're needed. You're here for a reason. And this is the program of Jesus for growth and maturity. Every member looking to Christ for how they've been gifted and then turning to one another with humble hearts and saying, Jesus, how can I serve and edify and build up my brothers and sisters around me? It's beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? Are you a part of that? Are you with us? Are you connected here? We need you. We need you. Do you know that Sunday morning is like the perfect example of every member ministry. It's like a masterclass. You come in here and there are people using their gifts constantly to serve and build one another up. They're the obvious ones, the person who's preaching or teaching down the hall or the person who's leading in our children's ministry, the people who have music gifts leading worship, but that's just scratching the surface. Then you get down below and you start, if you were to look, you'd start to realize there are people who have the gift of faith and they come to church every Sunday believing there's someone who needs to be encouraged today and I believe God has brought me here to do it, to pray with another brother or sister, to believe on behalf of that brother or sister and pray for them. I've been so blessed over the last month and a half after church on Sunday to see little pockets of spontaneous prayer break out. It's like a revival. It's so cool. <laughs> and people are just praying and I see it. Someone will share, I'm really struggling. And immediately a person will say, let's pray together. Just using the gift of faith. Maybe you have the gift of faith. Maybe you have the gift of service. All of these teams require servant hearts to prepare communion, to serve as an usher, to serve as a greeter, to make coffee. There's so many ways to serve. People who have the gift of discernment. You know, we have a safety team. Many of the people on that team have the gift of discernment, a desire to protect. That's a spiritual gift. What about the gift of hospitality? So we think when we hear hospitality, we, the problem is we think, well, that's a person who really knows how to decorate their house really well. And that's part of it, not really. But anyway, the hospitality is far less about opening your home 
as it is in the Bible, it's about opening your heart to another. It's an amazing word. You know, the Greek word for hospitality is the word philozenos, which it's basically two words. It means affection, philo, and xenos, which means stranger. It means having affection for the stranger. Isn't that an amazing idea? People who are hospitable are people who have affection for those who feel like outsiders. Oh my gosh, the church needs that. Do you come to church? By the way, I believe that almost every single Christian has that gift because we've received hospitality from Jesus, affection for the outsider. Do you come to church going, Jesus, would you give me eyes to see someone who doesn't feel like they belong here so that I could love them in the name of Christ? How powerful would that be, right? Okay, here's the mistake we make about spiritual gifts. We start in the wrong place. We start by saying, God, how have you gifted me? And we, and, and we take inventories and we do different things. And then we ask the question, I want to figure out how I am uniquely gifted. And I just want to soak in that for a while, right? You know, and then we'll often say, and I am not going to do anything in the church unless I get to express my spiritual gifts, right? But that's, no, 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 no. That's not the way to do it. No, 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 no. Should I say no, no, no? A couple more times. This is not the place to start. Here's where you start. You start not by asking, what are my gifts? You start by asking, what does my church need right now? What's the, what's the greatest need? And then in humility, you step into that need and you, and you serve using gifts. And when that happens, it's just beautiful. I had so many people email me about loneliness. People saying, I used to be lonely. I know that feeling. I want to help. And people saying, what can I do? You know, you can show up and invite someone for lunch after service. Invite someone over to your home. Sit down for a cup of coffee. Become a part of our community. Begin to use your gifts. Become a member of River West Church. And that means when you come to church, you come with a posture and with, an, with a perspective that says, Jesus, how can I be used to serve and build up the body of Jesus? And River West, if that begins to happen, we're gonna see amazing things happen in our church. Amen? I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. Well, here's ingredient number four. We have the headship of Christ. We have gifted and qualified leadership. We have every member ministry. And finally, we have a consistent balance of truth and love. This is gonna lead us to the table. But here's what Paul says in verse 15. Will you look at it with me? He says, rather, speaking the truth and love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Paul says, do you want to know how a church grows up into maturity? A church grows up into maturity as they maintain this balance of truth and love. It's beautiful. Truth and love held together in symmetry. Think of them like the bumpers that help us stay in a great place as we, as we minister to one another. Do I minister with that balance? And it's a really important corrective because typically people tend to gravitate towards one 
or the other, truth or love. And we get out of balance. So I know people who care about truth deeply and they, they, they consider themselves to be a warrior for truth and that's really good. But what happens if a person fights for truth and holds on to truth and they begin to do it in a way where they let go of love? I think what happens is that actually their truth ceases to be truth to the person who's receiving it because it's not delivered with love. But on the other hand, what about the person who cares so much about love? Those are great, amazing people and they fight for love and love is their highest value. But what if in your pursuit of maintaining love, you begin to let go of truth? See, I would argue that actually your love ceases to be love. And it almost becomes this sort of soft, gooey thing, you know? which is great if you're a cookie, but not if you're a Christian. As a Christian, what happens is we hold both of these together. And then when they're held together and balanced, powerful things happen. You know, it's interesting. We just look at verse 15. Can I show you that the word speaking is actually not there in the Greek? Literally, how this phrase reads is it says, rather truthing in love, we are to grow up. So it doesn't mean that you don't use speech. In fact, a lot of times you do have to speak to to hold truth and love together. But you don't always have to speak to be a person who truths in love. In fact, sometimes the most powerful way to truth in love is to stop talking and listen to someone. Just close your mouth and open ears. And sometimes that is like this powerful way you communicate truth and love to someone. Sometimes truthing and love is powerfully expressed through a handshake or a hug or eye contact, empathy. It's beautiful. And did you know that in the life of the Christian church, the most powerful truthing and love didn't happen with words, it happened with an action as Jesus hung on a cross and sacrificial lamb, like a lamb who was carried away to the slaughter, he did not speak. It's powerful. He truthed in love for us. And when we go to the table, we get inspired because we're reminded, I have, a, I have an example of truthing in love. Sometimes I have to speak. Sometimes I need to listen. Sometimes I need to embrace. Sometimes I need to exhort. But always I need to follow Christ as my example who truthed in love in perfect balance. This morning, we're going to go to the table. And what I hope will happen for you is that you'll get the bread and you'll get the cup. And as you return to your seat, not only will you remember the love of Christ for you and the truth of Christ for you, but maybe Jesus will inspire you to be a person who truths in love. Maybe he'll remind you of someone who needs that in your life. Maybe it's a spouse or a neighbor or someone in the body of Christ. Will you draw strength from Jesus today.
and let's keep growing in maturity, River West.